Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Word of thanks to the pastors for the invitation to come and open the Word of God with you this morning. It's a privilege to be with you and uh, to send greetings as well from Grace Community Church in Huntsville. It's wonderful to have like-minded churches to minister with one another, to support one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. So you are a blessing to us. As we turn to James chapter 2, um, we want to talk about issues of evangelism and apologetics. Apologetics is a class that I, I love. Um, it is to defend the faith. And as we think about James chapter 2, there is an issue of apologetics in this text, how we defend or explain a passage that many of our, for example, Catholic friends, Orthodox friends might use to say, look, we're not saved by faith alone, we're saved by works. How would you answer that from James? Well, as we talk about the gospel itself, maybe it's good to kind of remind ourselves of these essentials to know what exactly we're talking about. So we understand that we are created by a holy God, and our problem is that we have sinned, right? We've all sinned in Adam. We are born in sin, and all those who are born in sin essentially have a death sentence, right? For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you might think, well, I'm not that bad of a person. I haven't killed anyone, committed adultery and those things. But in reality, just think on a very basic level. How many times have you lied in your life? How many times have you stolen? How many times in your life have you lusted after someone just in your heart, which Christ says is adultery? How many times have you hated someone, which John says is a form of murder even? As we begin to think about the secret life of our hearts and what we have done in our life, we understand that we are not good people. And that's exactly what uh, Paul says in Romans 3, alluding to the Old Testament, is that none of us are good. Because we were born as sinners, not wanting to do anything with the primary motive of glorifying God. And that is by nature the definition of that which is good. And so that is the bad news, isn't it? We all deserve punishment. We all deserve hell from a holy God for our sins. But God is rich in grace and mercy, isn't he? And that is the glory of the good news and the glory of our Savior, that the Father has loved us so much that he has sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty on the cross for our sins so that anyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And who is this Jesus. He is the second person of the divine trinity, isn't he? Eternal God with the Father and the Holy Spirit, conceived in the Virgin Mary by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, born truly man, truly God. Why did he have to be truly man? Because he had to be our perfect human representative in God's courtroom of justice. He is standing with us, offering to take the punishment we deserve. So he had to be truly human, live a truly human life, and to die as truly a man. But at the same time, he also had to be truly God, didn't he? Why did he have to be truly God? Because he had to be the spotless lamb of God to take upon himself the punishment of all who would believe. And so he could do that as the second person of the divine trinity. And so he lived a life that you could not live, that I could not live so that he could die the death that all of us should have died. 
And so as Christ is hanging on the cross, the Father is not looking away and crying a tear as some movies portray, but he is focused with laser-like precision on Christ, pouring the wrath upon him for the sins of all of his chosen ones. And so Christ pays the penalty for sinners. And not only did he die for our sins, he was raised again for our justification to show that the Father was pleased with his sacrifice. And so the call for all of us, every man, every woman, everywhere that Paul preached in Athens is to repent, uh, turn to Christ in faith, believe in him with all of your heart, give your life to him. You can do that even this morning, even now. One of the glories of the gospel is that we are saved by faith alone, that we do not add one small thing to the gospel. And if we were, let's say, okay, you have to be baptized to be saved or take the Lord's Supper to be saved or do this to be saved, it is in essence telling Christ he has not done enough for your salvation. That's blasphemy, isn't it? It's it's to slap Christ in the face and say, I need to do something to help you secure my salvation. But one of the most glorifying aspects of the gospel is that we are saved by faith alone so that God gets all of the glory. We boast in nothing. That is supported all throughout the New Testament in passages like Romans 3.28. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Seems clear, right? Well, as you football fans know that watch Sports Center on Saturday mornings during football season, Lee Corso always says, not so fast, my friends. Not so fast, my friends. And so that's what our Catholic friends would say as well, and Orthodox friends. Not so fast. What about James chapter 2? Verse 24 that says, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, this is where apologetics comes in. How do we explain this? Is, is Peter or, uh, Paul contradicting James? Uh, even the great reformer Martin Luther had great difficulty with this passage and kind of wanted to do away with the book of James. Well, I think a basic rule of Bible interpretation is context, context, context. As we look at the books of Romans and Galatians, we see that Paul is talking about a legal form of justification. So how do we define this? Okay, we talk about big theological terms. Justification is a one-time legal pronouncement of righteousness by the Father based on your repentant faith. It's like in the courtroom of God. Once you repent and turn to God, he pronounces you righteous based on your faith in Christ. Again, a one-time event. That's legal justification. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians as well. But what is the context then of James? Very important to ask. So just as the background, James is probably the first book written in the New Testament is written to the dispersion. So these are Jews that have fled Israel because of persecution, persecution of Stephen and others. These are people that have lost everything for their faith, had to leave their home, their synagogues, their family, what they're comfortable with in life. Just imagine what that would be like. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? We got a taste of that when we were living in Ukraine, uh, not Ukraine, but in the Czech Republic, the start of the Ukrainian war with Russia. 
and people were leaving, flooding out of Ukraine, some of them living in our home for a while. They brought nothing but what they could carry with their hands, them and their children. You think, I have so much to be thankful for, <laughs> very little to complain about with these people. But this is what is happening in the book of James. These people have lost everything for their faith. What would that life be like? Well, we see by reading the book of James. What is the very first thing he talks about? How to handle trials in a godly way. Very appropriate for that crowd, right? Then he talks about how do you care for people that can give nothing back to you, widows and orphans, the poor. So throughout the book of James, he is really painting a portrait for us what genuine Christianity looks like or how a genuine Christian actually behaves because when life is good, you have a steady income, nice house, great church, life is much easier, right? It's easy to become a Christian. Yeah, everybody's a Christian. It might even be good for business to be a Christian. But what if times are hard? What if persecution hits? Then authentic Christianity is put on display and false professors eventually are going to be exposed in that kind of context. So in this context of James, he is going to show us, he's going to contrast dead faith versus living faith to show that faith without works is dead. So let's first notice James' description of dead faith in verses 14 through 20 of James chapter 2. Verses 14 through 20, James chapter 2. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Well, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Now, the first thing I want you to see in verse 14 is an empty confession. Notice verse 14. What use is it if someone says, right? It's very easy to say, yes, I'm a believer. Yes, I'm Christian. Yes, I'm born again. But as we say in English, uh, words are cheap, right? Words are cheap. And so it is in the family of faith. Just because someone says these things doesn't mean that it's necessarily true. Where is the proof? Beyond doctrinal agreement, where is the proof? It's in how people live. It's by seeing a faithful life. Now, an initial question as we're reading this and talking about faith, is there such a thing as non-saving faith? Non-genuine faith? Because I think Scripture is clear that there is. You think about passages like John chapter 2 that says, many believed in him, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in all men. They were following him with false motives for free breakfast or whatever it might be from Jesus or healing. Think about the parable of the soils. Some people accept the word even with joy and show a measure of fruit, but when persecution or 
prosperity come, what do they do? They fall away, showing that their faith is not genuine. If you really want to see a great example of non-saving faith, you see it in our very passage in James chapter 2, verse 19. The demons believe. They have a kind of belief, but would any of us say that the demons are saved and be in heaven? Absolutely not. So there is a non-saving faith. So when we talk about what is true saving faith, theologians debate this throughout church history, right? But I think there's three critical elements. Number one, you have to understand the content of the gospel, right? Uh, We talked about that a little bit earlier, walking through the essential elements of the gospel. But the second essential element is that you have to actually believe that it's true. You have to have mental assent that, yes, this is the content, and I understand that it's true. So with those two elements, does that make you a Christian? What do you think? No, it doesn't. Because who has that kind of faith? The devil has that kind of faith. The demons have that kind of faith. They know very well, even better than we do, the content of the gospel, and they know for sure that it's true, but they're not saved. They reject it. They hate it. So a third critical element of the gospel is a heartfelt, repentant submission and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a giving of your life to him in faith, saying to him, I no longer live. I Now to live is Christ for me. I'm, the old me is dead. Now I live for him. But how do you know if someone is, has this? If you're talking to someone or if you're counseling someone, how do you know if someone's a genuine believer or not? Because the elect don't walk around with a red dot on their heads. Well, we're looking for outward signs, aren't we? Outward fruit. Does, does a person love to read the Scripture? Does he or she love to be in church, love to pray, love to be uh, active in ministry? So these are essential elements to set the foundation for us. Just one other uh, housekeeping duty to define for us is this term justification. Justification. As we already mentioned from many epistles in the New Testament, we define justification. You remember how we defined it? as a one-time legal pronouncement of righteousness by the Father upon you when you believe, right? Very important. But I think our problem is, as we come to texts like this, is that we always want to import that definition to every time that we see the word justification. And we shouldn't do that because there are other ways to define the term justification than that legal form. So, for example, in English, in Czech, in Russian, in other languages, the term justification can also be uh, defined as vindication. You've always, all of you have used the word justification that way, to vindicate a claim. Or to prove a claim to be true by evidence. So let me give an example of how that works. Uh, My family's not with me here today. They send their greetings. Uh, They're back in Huntsville. But I have four boys and a girl, my wife Sharon, and my four boys, they're all taller than I am now. And so let's bring a purely hypothetical example <laughs> where one of my boys says, look, Daddy, uh, I'm taller than you now. I think I can tap you out. You're like, we, we wrestle, and for sure, you know, I'm going to choke you out if you don't tap out. And so, men, as good dads, what do we say to something like that? Okay, let's move the furniture, <laughs> and let's see, let's see, okay? We, we have to bring these boys down a notch sometimes, but, but you understand what has happened in that hypothetical situation. One of my boys made a verbal claim, you know, I can tap you out, and what do I say? I say, you're going to have to justify that claim. 
You see how I use the word justify? Justify the claim. You have to vindicate the claim. You have to show that that claim is true by evidence. Now, the next question you might be asking is, well, do we see this clearly in Scripture? And that's a great question because if it's not in Scripture, that eliminates the point, right? But in Matthew, let me give you a couple of examples. Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. The same term there. Now, does it make any sense to say wisdom is legally pronounced righteous by her deeds? No, that makes no sense. But it makes a lot of sense to say wisdom is vindicated or shown to be true wisdom by what she does, right? Another example, 1 Timothy 3.16 says that Jesus was vindicated in the flesh by the Spirit. It makes no sense to say Jesus was legally pronounced righteous because he is the righteous one, but it makes a lot of sense to say Jesus in his identity was vindicated by his works through the Spirit. He was shown to be who he was by what he did. It's a vindication. Now, as we understand those two different definitions, we turn to James, and the point becomes more clear. If someone says, I am a Christian, because that's the verbal claim, but then consistently lives the life of the devil, living in sin, that claim is not justified, is it? It's not vindicated. It's a false confession and dead faith. Now, James in the text is going to give us an example of that dead faith that is not vindicated by a faithful life. Verse 15 and 16, if someone comes without food or clothing is, is asking for help and you say, be warned, be filled, what use is that, right? Consistent with James, he's picking up on the poor. These are the people that he is ministering to that have, been, that have fled Israel, but this is not just the general poor. What kind of poor does the text say? This is important for the mission of the church today as well, right? We have to feed all the poor. Well, what does the text say? Brother and sister is those in the faith. And how poor are they? What do they need? They need clothes. They need food. Again, we're talking about Christian refugees. So what does the false confessor say? Go in peace. Be warmed. Be filled. This could be understood in two different ways, depending on the voice in the Greek language here. In the middle voice, it's essentially, you need to go make yourself be warmed and filled. In other words, you need to go get a J-O-B, right? Take care of yourself. But in the passive voice, it's more of like a pious prayer. Just be warmed and be filled. Either option's bad, isn't it? Either option makes you angry. How could you treat anyone this way, not to mention a Christian and Where's the hospitality that is really part and parcel of being a Christian? We're to open our homes to strangers. There's no compassion. There's no love here. And it almost completely mirrors the situation, really the judgment scene from Matthew 25 where Jesus is separating the, the goat from the sheep and saying to the, to the goats, you, you didn't clothe me when I needed clothes. You didn't feed me when I needed food or give me drink when I needed it. Um, this is the mark of true Christianity, hospitality. So verse 17 is the verdict. So faith that has no works is what? It's dead, being by itself. We understand this concept, you know, we're in springtime now, right, with the, the trees blooming and fruit is going to come on the vine and on the trees. And when we see a tree that is not blooming, that it has no foliage, no fruit on it, we have a good idea, like, this thing may be dead. We might wait another season, but it is not producing fruit. So if a, if a tree is not producing, it's dead, you cut it down. It's useless. It's fake. It's not real anymore. 
because it has no pro- produce. So James is saying this of the empty content of the empty professor. Notice verse 18. Someone can say, you have faith, I have works. You, depending on your translation, the, the quotations there may be different. I think the ESV that, that I'm using here has the, the quotations that ends, you have faith, I have works, end of quotation. Other translations may be different because there's no quotation marks in the Greek language. But I think that's what it is. You have faith, I have works. Here's the situation. Someone who has no works to say, oh, I'm a Christian, I have faith, is saying, look, there are a variety of gifts in the church, James. You have faith in works. I have faith. We're all different in our giftedness. Let's just get along. I'm okay. You're okay. And so James is responding to this criticism by saying, show me your faith without the works. It's, it's impossible. But I'm showing you that my faith is genuine by what I do, how I live. It's just like somebody saying, you know, I can throw a football 80 yards, but I'm not going to prove it. I don't have to prove it. You should just trust me. Versus someone that can come in, take the ball, and throw it 80 yards. The claim has to be justified. It has to be vindicated, particularly in the Christian life. And so faith and works are inseparable. So we have several children here. Maybe we have a test for the kids. If I were to have a quarter, does any of the kids know what are on the two sides of the quarter? Anyone remember the face of George... Washington, very good. And what's on the other side? Some kind of creature. The bald eagle, right? The bald eagle. Now, what if I were to give you that quarter and say, okay, this is yours, and you look at it, and you see George Washington's face, but you don't see the eagle on the other side? What would you say? You haven't given me a quarter. This is garbage. (laughs) This isn't real. This is fake money, right? And so for the money to be legal, good money, it has to have both sides of it, right? And that's the way it is with faith and works. When God grants you faith, it changes your life. It is impossible for God to cause you to be born again and make you into a new creature and for it to have absolutely no impact on your life. And so Martin Luther says it's just as impossible to separate works from faith as it is light from fire. Calvin says, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. All right, so now we have the critic coming back to the table again, going to give another criticism. And he says, wait a minute. I can say the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 19, the Lord our God is one. This is the statement of faith for Israel. It's much like Christians today that quote the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed in church and say, this is our statement of faith. I believe this, therefore I must be a Christian. But notice James's response in verses 19 and 20. You believe that God is one. Great. You believe in the Shema of Israel. Notice the sarcasm. It's almost dripping off the page here. He says, you do well. In other words, congratulations. Why does he say that? Verse 20, the demons believe that. And they shudder. This goes back to what we were talking about, the three aspects of faith again. You can know the content of the gospel. You can understand that it's true, but that does not mean that you are born again. 
the demons have a kind of faith. And it's interesting, there's no atheists or agnostics with demons, right? They understand the truth. They know the reality of God and the future judgment, unlike unbelieving, unbelieving humans. But brothers and sisters, friends, this is something that we need to take very seriously, that you can have absolutely correct doctrine, but still not be saved. I'm convinced there will be many in hell who have good evangelical theological doctrine that have never been born again. Yes, you have to possess good doctrine, but good doctrine also has to possess you and your life. So James takes it a little bit farther to humiliate these people that are criticizing James. And he says, not only do the demons believe like you do, but they do something that you do not do, and they actually have a response. At least they shudder, but you have no response at all to the gospel. It hasn't changed you at all. So the demons are giving more of a response to the gospel than these false confessors. This is the nature of dead faith. It's empty confession. It's non-working. It's useless. It has no compassion. It's dead, superficial content, and it does not save. And just as a side note, I think it's interesting that James is not arguing against uh, these Christians or professors as those who are committing horrible sin in adultery and murder and all these things. He's saying, you're, if you're a Christian, you're not doing what you ought to be doing. It's the difference between the sins of commission and omission. This is really important because a lot of people say, well, I haven't killed anybody. Okay, that's true, but do you do what God calls you to do as a faithful Christian? So James, in verse 20, he's going to offend our sensibilities a little bit, our uh, political correctness, and he says, call us fools here. You foolish man, anyone who is arguing against him. Now, why would he do that? Why would he offend us this way? Well, I think maybe some of us have grown up in church. We've hear, heard these things all of our lives, and sometimes it takes a little bit stronger language to wake us up to a reality that might be true in our lives that we never even considered before. And so he says, look, are you just going through the motions? Are you a hypocrite that just needs to be awakened, that have never truly repented? So verse 20, do you really want to be shown, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Do you need more convincing? So this is where we'll talk about living faith. Living faith. Verses 21 through 26, we'll start with verses 21 through 23. So he's going to start with the father of the Jewish people. So if you want to make an argument in the New Testament for doctrine, your ace card is going to be Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and that's exactly what James does. He says, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected or completed. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned or counted to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Now pause there for a moment. If you were to read that just by itself, you would probably think, man, this seems like he's teaching you have to be saved by works. But by now you understand that there's two different ways to understand justification. One time legal pronouncement of righteousness based on faith and the other, remember the word? vindication or proving a claim to be true by 
evidence. The challenge is to know what sense James is using in this passage. So let's consider, what are the two events that James just mentioned about the life of Abraham? What are the two big events there? Number one, there's Isaac, right? The, the offering or the willingness to offer Isaac. And second is when God pronounced Abraham to be righteous based upon faith. <clears throat> Next question, which of those came first? Which came first? Well, the first event was when Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. Um, that is that one-time event, right? So then you think with Isaac, this happens how many years later? Decades later, maybe 30 years later. How can it be then, if we are thinking about legal pronouncement of righteousness, that he was justified in Genesis 15 and 30 years later justified again? That would have him being saved twice, right? So we understand that in the second instance of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, he is using that second understanding of justification. That in other words, uh, Abraham's faith that he experienced in Genesis 15 was vindicated or shown to be true faith by his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. The claim was vindicated. He was justified in the sense that, that yes, he is truly born again. He is truly saved. So he experienced salvation when he believed, and his salvation was exhibited when he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Why would Abraham be willing to sacrifice Isaac? Verse 22, faith was working with the works. He wouldn't have done that if he wasn't truly born again, if he was not um, saved, right? So just as a living tree will produce fruit, a, a living Christian, someone who is united to God, will have a changed life. This is why verse 22, he says that the works completed his faith. Just like in a sense of the tree bears fruit, that completes the function of the tree. So it is with Christians to, to do good works, to love, to deny yourself is in a sense a completion, a fulfillment of your faith so that we can be called, just as Abraham, friends of God. This then leads us to verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Hopefully by now you understand the, the answer to that, right? We're not talking about a legal pronouncement of righteousness, but proving a claim to be true. It is a sense of vindication. So you could say it this way. You could paraphrase it, that a man's claim to be saved or to have faith is vindicated by works and not just by a verbal confession because anybody can do that. In fact, I would, I would recommend or that you write vindication in the margin of your Bible there just to help you remember that in verse 24. Now, he already pulled his ace card. What's the next card that James is going to use to prove his point? A very interesting character in verse 25, Rahab, Rahab. Oh, this is really, really interesting. Notice verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Okay, you're already smelling what we're cooking, right? You understand that vindication is at play here, not a legal pronouncement of righteousness, 
but as critical listeners, you're probably thinking, Jonathan, you need to justify that claim, right? You need to vindicate, was Rahab truly saved? Was she born again at the time the, the spies came? So I want to look at that with you. Joshua, turn to your Old Testament. Let's look at it together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua chapter 2, starting with verse 10. Joshua 2, verses 10 through 13. This is Rahab speaking now. She said, we have heard how the Lord... Uh, in your Bibles, if you're not using the Legacy Standard Bible, which has this as Yahweh, if the term God or Lord is ever capitalized in all caps, it is referencing what? It is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So keep that in mind. Why is that important? Because Rahab is identifying with the covenant God of Israel at this point, right? That's important. Not just a general name God uh, for, like Elohim. So we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, who you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, for Yahweh, your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This is her confession of faith. Now, therefore, please swear to me by Yahweh, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you deal kindly with my household. And she goes on from there. So did she believe, did she have faith upon the arrival of the spies? Absolutely she did. If you want more confirmation, Hebrews 11.31 puts Rahab in the hall of faith. As a side note, this just shows that the spies did not just happen upon Rahab, right? It wasn't just an accident, a coincidence. This was a divine appointment, not arbitrary at all. So she was prepared for the spies to come to save Israel. So to prove his point, James uses Ahab, Ahab Abraham and Rahab. Very different characters. You ever think about why that is? Why does he mention him and her but not someone else? Two completely different characters. One a man, one a woman. One the father of the Jewish people and the other is a foreigner. Both are in the line of the Messiah. He was moral, she was immoral. He is the great patriarch and she is a prostitute. He is high and lifted up, and she is low. He is in the spotlight, and she is in the shadows. Why does James do this? I think it's to show that this great doctrine of justification by faith alone is true in every time with every kind of people, but also that there will be a life of fruit-bearing that is a result of true faith. Salvation always produces a changed life. Just one other really interesting point, I think, as we think about these two characters, that historically in Scripture they are both known for something, and that something is also in James 2, and that is hospitality. How was Abraham hospitable? You remember when the three angels came to him, and he was very hospitable to him. And, of course, Rahab, hospitable, and 
and allowing the spies to come in and to be safe with her. What a different contrast to the false confessors of James. Well, James concludes verse 26. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And we understand that picture, don't we? We understand that from humans to animals, that when the life is out of them, there is nothing. There's no breath, there's no life, no movement, nothing. The point is the dead body without the soul is no more alive than a faith without works. That's a fearful prospect, isn't it? Fearful prospect if you've grown up in church and don't have conviction about these things or if you're worried about these things. We pray that God would open your eyes even this morning. Talk to one of your pastors. We'd love to talk to you after the service as well to give you assurance of salvation in these things. So as we return to our original question this morning, does Paul contradict James? Hopefully you see the answer is no. It's actually a very simple answer. You just have to understand how the word justification is defined in two different ways in this same passage, and then all the pieces really fall into place. Hopefully you would feel confident in explaining this to someone. So John MacArthur has really explained this well. I think it's helpful to read a quote from him in conclusion here. He says, concerning Paul and James, may I suggest to you that James and Paul are not standing face to face in confrontation, but they're standing back to back. They're fighting two different enemies. Paul is fighting those people who want salvation to be by works. James is fighting those people who want a salvation that does not demand anything. Paul is saying salvation is only by grace. James is saying that salvation only by grace necessarily produces works. There's no debate here. Paul is defending himself against legalistic salvation, and James is defending himself against a libertine approach that says you can believe and have no change in your life and still be saved. And unfortunately, that theological view still exists today and even in conservative circles. So brothers and sisters, take courage, have hope, encouragement that we are saved freely by God's grace, by faith alone. And in the power of the indwelling spirit, you are born again for a life of fruit-bearing My hope and prayer to you is that this will give you encouragement in your own faith, but will also give you confidence that you can share the gospel with your Catholic friends and others that want to appeal to this and give them an answer so that they can share the same hope that you have as well. With these things in mind, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks.